0: Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week, where I get to speak with an amazing physician about their specialty. This week, I nerded out with Dr. David Liebowitz, a general internal medicine physician, but more importantly, or more specially, a clinical infomortician. And it took me a long time, I think, to say that appropriately, but. Dr. Libovitz practices clinical informatics, and it's a up-and-coming field that is more and more necessary because we are gathering so much data in the medical world, in healthcare, with all of the research going on, and with electronic medical records, everything that goes into an electronic medical record— Could potentially help your patients in the future. And we have a great discussion about kind of who would be good for this field and what Dr. Leibovitz loves about being a a clinical infomortician, what he doesn't like about it, and just what it's all about. We start the conversation by how Dr. Leibovitz first became interested in clinical informatics.
1: I probably first became interested in clinical informatics. Um, during my chief resident year, uh, which was uh, way back in '93-'94, and um, I had uh, contemplated going to a variety of specialties, but had an opportunity to become a chief resident for a year. And during that year, worked administratively, a lot of teaching, of course, and seeing patients too. And realized there was uh, just so much more we could do with information, effectively, to manage patients than we had been. And that's what stoke my interest. The other thing to to mention in that context, though, is I'd studied electrical and computer engineering as an undergraduate, Um, always planned to go to medical school, but enjoyed uh, a variety of the science aspects of engineering. And that lent itself also to to my realizing all of the potential in this area.
0: So for someone who very likely has never heard of what clinical informatics is or has never heard that term before, let alone a physician who quote-unquote practices or, or works in clinical informatics, what is it?
1: So um, one quick way to think about it is it's um, the clinical specialty now that focuses on how we acquire information from patients, how we store that information for later use, and how we apply information to help patients obtain optimal outcomes, both at the single patient level as well as at a population level. So simply it's how we're managing information effectively, gathering, storing, and using. And there is enough body of information available now about how to do this effectively, that it was created as its own ACGME, American College of Graduate Medical Education, um, to um, uh, be its own subspecialty in the American Board of Medical Specialties recognition. So just like cardiology, geriatrics, gastroenterology clinical informatics is now a board approved subspecialty as well and um, has a two-year clinical informatics fellowship. And just for for your listeners, again, a little bit. So it's after medical school, there's then um, uh, residency of variable length, uh, depending on the specialty. And then following residency, one can go into a fellowship for additional subspecialty training. And that's where clinical informatics falls. Unlike for example. One other quick example is electrophysiologists complete a cardiology fellowship first before going to cardiac electrophysiology. Here for clinical informatics, one can complete any of the other um, uh, accredited uh, residency programs to then begin this fellowship. So we could have surgeons together with non-surgeons in these training programs.
0: Interesting. So kind of, all paths potentially could lead to clinical informatics if, if somebody wanted to. Exactly. Nice. I, I wish I knew more about it when I was going through training. Cause I'm a huge computer nerd and, and I love data. I love programming. I love, um, lots of automation and thinking through that kind of stuff. And so it probably would have been a good, a good, uh, itch to scratch for me. Not
1: too late.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I don't know about that. Uh, But that's that's very, very interesting to to hear about that. So I think a lot of people potentially will know about IBM Watson, even though IBM seems to have kind of closed the door on Watson. But there was a lot of talk very early on in in Watson's days of it being a, a kind of. Partner with physicians uh, holding all of that information and, and a physician being able to kind of talk to Watson in whatever language they talk and, and get to potentially a diagnosis sooner or a better differential to help get to a diagnosis sooner. Is that that type of thinking? Is that something potentially for students who's still trying to understand clinical informatics and what its role is? Is that something to think about there?
1: Yeah, exactly. So clinical informatics in, incorporates all sorts of information and then guidance on how best to apply that information. And so that absolutely falls within this space. And, and IBM um, has had a number of clinical informaticians, uh, informatics physicians working for them, as well as um, Google is now looking for additional uh, informatics-minded physicians to be working there. Um, there's um, lots of interest in this area. So conventionally, beyond kind of the Artificial intelligence, machine learning, guidance, and caring for patients, which I can talk at, at length about as well. There's also a variety of more kind of pedestrian in-use, substantially now opportunities as well. As well, and those include um, kind of uh, um, electronic medical records and everything attached to them in any different way. Yep. So, be it patient portals, how patients submit information what um, sort of terminology should that be mapped to so that alerts can um, uh, percolate through the system when a patient responds in a certain way that requires additional attention? Um, how can an individual physician understand for all of all of his or her patients, who should they reach out to who's most in need, who hasn't been seen in a long time? Leveraging this information more effectively um, uh, is is clear is within the within the scope of practice of a clinical informatics physician. Understanding the techniques and the approaches and the standards, how information is is stored, the sorts of tools available and analytics to actually solve those sorts of problems. And yes, also get to some of that fun stuff that isn't solely futuristic either. Yeah. Um, for example, in the midst of the COVID nineteen pandemic, one other comment, kind of on the uh, guidance perspective, is. Um, we were able to implement, for example, um, uh, risk scores for patients that have been validated across um, uh, many patients um, at different hospitals using an electronic health record to help us see which patients should we round on extra, be extra vigilant about in terms of deterioration when resources become extra scarce. So all of that's possible. A lot of it's being implemented in different stages now as well.
0: Yeah. So let me let me challenge you with with two potential arguments that that I know many who fear technology potentially or maybe don't understand the value of technology um, that that come up a lot that I hear is is number one, you you are the enemy because you are going to replace physicians. How do you how do you respond to that? Like you're you're building the future technology that's going to replace me why are you doing that? Yeah.
1: So at, at this point there is, um, nowhere, uh, we're nowhere close and I can't anticipate even a time when that will be the case. And in fact, um, a lot of what patients receive, and this is where medical schools appropriately have focused so much attention in recent years, more so to kind of appropriate bedside training interactions, understanding um, uh, that communication with patients is, is critical, being able to be effectively empathic, consistently, open-minded, listening, uh, demonstrate cultural humility. Uh, all of these aspects are not replaceable outside of a human uh, in any foreseeable future. <laughs> uh, helping to extend hope to patients, um, uh, kind of helping to uh, provide appropriate understanding and context for their, uh, what they're going through, this is not going to be replaced by artificial intelligence. On the other hand, um, the flip side is, physicians can't keep track of all the varied drug interactions that exist. And when one's adding um, a medication in for a sick patient who's already on eight or nine medications, and looking at the potential implications of an additional chemical added to that mixture, what might interact with each other, physicians can't keep that straight. We need tools to help us. And this is where our medical records can look at that. Um, the other point to make is that there's a lot of effort now in what's uh, called explaining the black boxes for even machine learning and artificial intelligence that exists. So if it says do X, why? We yeah. need an understanding of that. And in medicine, there's um, significant effort to ensure that even when we have algorithms in place that guide decision making in some fashion, where again, um, shared decision-making needs to be uh, uh, involved, the patient and the physician, both need to have a, a, come to an appropriate understanding of what to do next. We need to understand where this guidance is coming from and how to effectively, it's not always necessarily an expert body, but an expert body can endorse an algorithm, but then what really does the algorithm mean? How is it pulled together? Why does it work this way? That's what our physicians need to know. Uh, during their training process, it's not going to replace a doctor anytime soon.
0: Yeah. So, the, the second argument that is probably very common that I hear a lot is, is what you just mentioned the algorithm, that this sort of technology is just going to lead to physicians being technicians and we lose the quote unquote art of medicine because we have an algorithm that tells us what to do and, and we can't use our brain anymore. How do you respond to that? Yeah.
1: Again, the final decisions between the patient and the physician to proceed include a personalized contextual understanding, risk benefit assessment for one patient taking even a medication a day may be too much. For another, uh, adding in another that may potentially interact and understanding that these are value decisions. These aren't um, cut and dry decisions in almost all cases. Um, And um, where I say almost, I mean, there's some uh, clear risk benefit um uh, uh, assessments for example in receiving a covid 19 vaccine that again for almost all patients the benefits far outweigh those risks um and it's hard um and and so that guidance can be very clear and explained in that fashion why the benefits so exceed uh risks but similarly in terms of kind of cookbook medicine or just following the output of an algorithm in some fashion it's all where the art comes in is the effective communication and understanding. The patients are not trained in medicine. The physicians are. Uh, and a lot of the training is going to also focus on understanding how to derive. How does one craft these sorts of algorithms? How does one have an understanding that the guidance one receives isn't just some expert coming up with it, uh, the, uh, which has its own problems, um, but instead weighted based on how thousands of other patients have responded in similar circumstances and that's why this guidance is being there and how much should it be weighted still has to be a personal decision understanding how it's likely to impact that patient understanding that individual just um lost a, a sister to cancer or whatever the circumstances might be that weigh into that equation so again um not cookbook medicine anymore either
0: yeah good good job um so what does a typical day look like for you if if you're doing clinical informatics that, that doesn't sound like patient care to me?
1: Yeah. So, um, when I'm working with patients directly, I'm a practicing internal medicine physician. So I, I'm a general internal medicine physician. I see, um, uh, adults, um, and in that context. So today, for example, to give a, to, I supervised residents in our, um, general medicine clinic. And I also saw some of my own patients intermixed with, uh, supervising them, taking care of patients, providing guidance. Um, I still have to finish my notes from, <laughs> from this morning and the resident note. Um, one of the, um, veins of the, uh, electronic health record. It does. You got to feed the
0: beast. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's where you're getting your information from that you can act on later. <laughs> exactly.
1: And then following the clinic though, um, I, uh, was, um, one of the members of our clinical decision support committee, for example. So with my informatics background, I help with the guidance for the rules and alerts, sorts of guidance that we put into our electronic health record. So we were reviewing a variety of the rules and alerts, uh, things to change the sensitivity and specificity, how often they'll trigger and uh, the value of these alerts at that meeting. Um, Separately, I was involved with some uh, work this afternoon on a research project related to informatics. And that includes things like um, uh, trying to, again, avoid um, some errors in care for patients, preventing wrong patient and wrong medication errors. When we think about in a medical center with 11 hospitals, uh, or actually 12 now, such as we have, and the number of orders being put in every day across thousands of patients across the system and in busy emergency rooms, do we think that at any time, by mistake, someone might Order the wrong medication out of all those orders that were entered in, or enter the wrong chart to enter a medication, and how we might how might we address it? So we're doing research on that. So one of the projects I'm working on is helping guides uh, other uh, cues to help ensure that that those sorts of mistakes don't happen. And then, um, lastly, I'll mention I'm involved in a variety of educational efforts related to informatics and was emailing this afternoon with, some of our student leaders and our student interest group for, um, digital health and data science in our school and helping, uh, update an agenda for an upcoming meeting and how, of how we might further, um, uh, kind of help students become enthusiastic about this area. We have many students who've already signed up with interest, uh, indicative of its of its broad appeal.
0: Nice for that broad appeal. When, when one thinks about the potential job opportunities in the future because that's that's always important train and then get a job is is clinical informatics something that that you see every hospital will have a a clinical informatics specialist or will there be a regional clinical informatics specialist or Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how much you love Epic, Epic seems to be the the EMR that's taking over the world. Will Epic have their kind of uh, group of of clinical informatics specialists, and the hospitals won't need one? What What does that future look like?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and um, for the foreseeable future, um, and. Um, And and here, broadly in the specialty of clinical informatics, the need is not going to go away, it's only going to to increase. And part of this um, relates to um, information being more um, interoperable, where in effect, there's something called the 21st Century Cures Act that was originally passed in 2016, that was just um, uh, had provisions that are now active as of April 5th, for example, and some of the provisions active there was that patients should have immediate access to their electronic records. And other provisions that are going to come into effect in the this coming next couple of years in a staggered fashion is interoperability of data more effectively. Um, there is something called an API application programming interface. And I don't want to get too technical on this. But
0: <laughs> there was but just a-, a very big lawsuit about APIs that was settled in the Supreme Court.
1: Yes, so, so I'm a this, nerd. <laughs> yeah. So, so in this context, um, our individual records will be more portable. Nice. So patients can take records in their entirety. But even more to the point, and a potential threat to large vendors in a sense, or keeping them on their toes, is the mandate that organizations should be able to export all the records and be able to import them into another system yep. as well. So with this, um, and with the interoperability also allows um, a whole new ecosystem. Think like an app store for Apple or for Google. Epic is one of the vendors, has its own app store. Cerner has app stores, um, all scripts. There's a variety of the vendors have app stores coming up right now. However, there's gonna be a little bit of some, with the standards, um, a convergence in the ability to generate apps and the, the likelihood that they should work with different systems. And this, um, this tailoring of apps uh, and these standards ensures that we physicians, fortunately over time, are gonna have better and better tools to work with. So the whole environment is evolving in such a way that data becomes more portable. Huge need for continued, ongoing, ever-growing informatics work uh, from a clinical informatics fellowship graduate to, to consider getting into. And this is even, we're talking EHR data. There's other data that's complementary to the EHR, which is also going to help with personalized care. Here we have genomic data how to analyze, interpret, continue to update as new information about specific nucleotide sequences becomes available for an individual. How does that get wrapped into personalized care? Yeah. Um, and then we have epigenetics the data around the genes that helps. Um and, and changes that are are being monitored related to that. Again, its own talk a little bit. And then we have exposomics. We used to think, we, some doctors, speaking for myself, used, yeah, it's kind of fringe stuff a little bit about those exposures one had years ago. Turns out, you know, <laughs> of it does leave a little bit of a trail. And now yeah. with mass spectroscopy, we have all that data. So all that being said, lots of research opportunities out in for informatics graduates. Operational roles and quality and safety that all organizations are focused on and have to adhere to from increasing, not decreasing standards require informatics understanding, perfect opportunities for informatics graduates, and then just managing the systems plenty. So not just at the uh, vendor role, but at the individual medical center, at the individual hospital, at a practice level. Um, and, and similar to me, likely many, but not all. Some are, we have people here who focus full-time on informatics, don't see patients anymore, yeah. but many will have a blended sort of an approach, seeing patients and also having informatics related responsibilities.
0: Yeah. It's, I, I, again, as a, as a big tech nerd, I, there's so much opportunity. I was reading a book recently, not related to medicine, but it talked about the the data in medicine and how fifty years ago medical information doubled every fifty years, and then it was every ten years and then it was every seven years and it's it's probably five or six years now where where the information that we have about medicine is doubling and, and it's just impossible for physicians to keep up with that sort of information and and do do you see the role of informatics in that way to be one that that not only is keeping track of all the patient information, but then merging that with the most up-to-date research as well?
1: Yes. So there's um, a a variety of tools, and I'm continuing always to tweak my own approaches to staying up-to-date on different topics. So um, some um, are kind of what we could think of like with supervised machine learning, where someone predetermines specific outcomes. One can craft um, or, or have curated uh, reviews that come out in different topics. And typically those curations have some automated searches that then are curated by an individual and then fed up. So things like Journal Watch through the Massachusetts Medical Society um, for physicians and students uh, to kind of keep up to date on specific topics. It kind of provides an overview of the likely impactful clinical articles that have come out. In the research space, this becomes even trickier. There isn't as much that, that Journal Watch, but individual search queries that one can write with things like semantic search, um, which Microsoft has a, a a nice tool that they've created to uh, to help support um, uh, automatic retrieval of research articles on specific subjects. And Google Scholar uh, to give the Google product. They have a variety of these tools that are available. So yes, um, these same tools are important and clinical uh, informaticians are directly involved in this sort of work too. Um, and like, how do we, um, as I talked about, how do we recognize, um, uh, specific structured content? Like when a patient replies that they're getting sick, how can we recognize that we have specific terms that we recognize? Similarly, all the literature has specific terms associated with it. The National Library of Medicine has bibliographers that, um, manually review with everything, being published so quickly, it's hard for them to keep pace. We have other tools to extract keywords and then use them. So yes, this will continue to grow. Um, And uh, the terminology conferences uh, themselves discussing what are the terms we make available to apply, um, have their own informatics um, uh, uh, venues. Um, A few years ago, I was fortunate enough to go to Sweden for the um, International Healthcare Terminology Standards Development Organization meeting, <laughs> which um, sounds
0: scintillating, uh,
1: fondly known as itsy do, um, <laughs> that uh, um, discusses um, uh, the SNOMED terms that we add to uh, problem lists, the terminology that's essential hypertension as a uh, particular code, and the addition of new terms and its evolution. Yeah.
0: Uh, clinical inform- informaticians attend that. Interesting, for a student listening to this, who is like, this is really interesting. I never thought that my background as a, a hacker when I was 11 years old could potentially help me in the future as a physician. Like, what what sort of background makes for a good infomortician? Infomortician. Yeah. How do you, how do you say that again?
1: Yeah, informatician. informatician. I the go. term informaticist. Yeah. But the uh, AMIA, American Medical Informatics Association. So AMIA dot org. And I would encourage listeners to take a look at that website. There's educational opportunities, a variety of things to learn from there. Um, uh, uh, to take a look. That their preferred term was informatician. So I'm I'm going with it for now. It just sounds too much like mortician. Mortician. Yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. All right. So, so what's a, what's a good background for, yeah. for someone who makes for a good clinical infomortician, infomortician. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> really hard.
1: I play really any background as long as one's completed residency training, um, to go into it. Now, couldn't one work on in informatics as a field without going to medical school and develop this? Yes. There's opportunities. If one chooses not to, if one chooses to go to medical school, um, and one is investing in the time in the clinical education and the um, clinical training completely makes sense. Complete the clinical training, work on informatics projects, uh, quality improvement projects, others always. It's hard to do anything in medicine, as uh, per my description earlier, that doesn't at some level involve informatics. And then further, um, then to go into gaining an in-depth understanding of what's possible. From individual data elements to managing patients' um, populations more effectively with information, that's where the fellowship comes in. One's not expected in completing a two year fellowship to be an expert programmer, for example. Um, One would learn some coding, um, but enough to um, be able to supervise some projects and understand how it works and understand the tools available to improve populations, uh, uh, individual patients and populations, not necessarily um, code. uh, or for a livelihood. That's not the focus of where one graduates. The sorts of jobs, again, quality, safety, informatics roles, chief medical information officer, I've had these roles in the past, um, uh, and continuing to work in practices, or at vendors, or at startups to leverage this sort of knowledge, or just in day-to-day practice. So if yeah. one finishes your fellowship, becoming more and more skilled in this area will help one in one's clinical specialty to then continue to push the limits of what what's possible within that specific clinical discipline too.
0: Yeah. The the whole coding world is is kind of being turned on its head right now with the the no-code push and the tools that we have in the no-code world. And I was having a conversation with someone recently about that and they were very excited about the no-code world and going out and teaching it. And and for me being a nerd and being a coder I think there's there's this thought that because no code tools are out there that everyone can turn into a coder, and and I think again being being a nerd like coding requires a very specific mind that allows you to ask the right questions and understand the steps necessary to kind of get to where you need to go right. So I, I think in if then loops and and whatever else right. and and all that kind of stuff. So. Does does someone need to have that type of brain to be good at this job? Or is that something that you can teach or there are other kind of niches within the world where you don't have to have that programming brain? Yeah. So what I would say is one doesn't one can potentially have
1: the programming brain without having gone through too many courses in programming. So from an introductory perspective and understanding the concepts and how things work, that's important. That's, that's going to be expected during the fellowship program itself. Um, but in terms of being successful in this regard, having that sort of a mindset of unintended consequences, unexpected findings, being sensitive to all possible permutations of the sorts of system changes. One of the, one of the uh, exciting aspects of informatics too is when we take care of a patient in the clinic, it's one patient at a time. When we're, taking, when we're making changes from an informatics perspective, we're, we're impacting thousands at, and more patients at once, which has, comes with risks of unintended consequences, of which unfortunately literature is fairly rife as well from mistakes that might happen. So one has to do this very carefully, and this training helps prepare one to make those sorts of initiatives, uh, to take, take, take those sorts of uh, significant changes. Um, but in terms of kind of the the coding perspective, what I'll also say is that one also has to recognize one's limitations. Um, uh, Custom uh, coding to address very specific issues is a very, uh, uh, especially when it's a, a complex set of parameters that one is manipulating, one needs a skilled programmer. The automatic generated solutions are not going to work. Similarly, in machine learning, there are now automated tools Uh, that let you pick the best algorithm to apply to a data set and actually do the data cleansing and transformation prior to doing a predictive algorithm. Say you want to figure out um, how many people with COVID-19 are going to pass away during their hospital stay. You have all the different elements of them and you know who passed away and who didn't. Let's create an algorithm to predict who might in the future. There are automated tools now to do some of this. That's not something that's going to be ready for prime time using one of these automated tools yet. However, um, similarly with the coding, one needs to go behind the scenes, understand the features in great detail to really have an effective working algorithm. However, for teaching and for principal understanding, some of these automated tools can actually be very helpful. Stepping through a Jupyter notebook, which some of your listeners may understand, to execute some code, see how it works, read some of the explanations without being able to write the whole thing can actually be very helpful for s- students throughout medical school to know, but not everyone needs to know how to do that.
0: I could nerd out about this all day long, but for, for the student who potentially y- you have their interest peaked, what kind of final words of wisdom do you have for them to get some more information on this and, and explore this as a potential career opportunity in the future?
1: What I would say is that students should definitely go ahead and take a look at AMIA, A-M-I-A dot O-R-G. And there's um, memberships available specifically for students. And rather than the, the usual annual membership fee, which is $380, the fee is $50 for students to explore. But then there's other content that's just freely available on the website in terms of career centers, other information to look at about informatics. And so that's really a place that I would say students should should take a look at. That could be a home for them to get involved in projects even before um, uh, they, uh, embark upon a a medical career. And then, um, the other aspect to mention again is just to reinforce, um, when we think about technology, how it's changing the world, it's changing medicine too. Medicine is a little bit behind in some aspects and way ahead in others. This is going to continue to grow, um, exponentially in terms of information, as we mentioned, as well as in the possibility of really helping people. Um, informatics will let one within medicine become one of the experts helping drive medicine forward. So definitely would encourage your students to um, investigate this as a career option.
0: All right, there you have it. Again, Dr. David Leibovitz, a clinical infomortician practicing <laughs> clinical informatics. If you want more information about clinical informatics, you can find out more at AMIA.org. Again, that's AMIA.org. I hope you enjoyed this episode. A little different of a specialty for you. Have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories.
1: This is MedEd Media.